Welcome at Book Tales, the breezy literary podcast brought to you by Passaporta. Book Tales, refreshing literature, shaken and stirred. Our guest is the Irish writer Maggie O'Farrell for a talk on her most recent novel, Hamnet. Set in Warwickshire in the 16th century and inspired by O'Farrell's fascination with the story behind one of Shakespeare's most enigmatic and famous plays, Hamnet is written from the point of view of Agnes, the playwright's wife, who recounts the death of one of their children. Your host is writer and journalist Annelies Beck. Let's talk about Hamnet. Um, a way to look at the life of William Shakespeare without mentioning him ever. And it's not really about him. It's about his wife, Agnes, not Anne Hathaway, as she's usually uh, named, but Agnes. How come? I originally conceived the book as to be about fathers and sons, as of course the players. But when I began my research um, about Shakespeare and his children and his wife, I became a uh, distracted by how badly she has been treated, his wife has been treated by historians and scholars, other novelists, writers of films. You know, we have always been told this narrative about her, that she is this peasant. She trapped him into marriage by becoming pregnant. Um, he hated her. He had to go away to London to get away from her. He regretted his marriage all the reading I did for this book, I've never found a single shred of evidence that would support that. People will always say, but what about the behest in Shakespeare's will that said he left her his second best bed? But the will in itself is a very dry document. I mean, the man was dying when he wrote it, so it's not surprising, probably of typhoid, which is a particularly unpleasant death. And the second best bed is an interlineation. It's squeezed in between two other lines. And there isn't, there isn't any affection at all. I mean, and also, in, in Jacobean times, she was entitled to a, a whole third of his estate, which was pretty considerable. I felt really um, angered on her behalf that she had been treated with such hostility and vilification. And I, I wanted to ask readers, in a way, to open themselves up to a different interpretation of her, to say that perhaps actually they did love each other, perhaps their marriage was a partnership, it was a, an exchange of opinions and artistry. And... Perhaps she was illiterate. She probably was because she was the daughter of a, a sheep farmer. But, you know, it doesn't need to be said, really, that illiteracy doesn't mean that you are stupid, that there are other forms of intelligence. I wanted to sort of reclaim her, to give her a different voice and a, and a proper presence in a book. And one of the documents I read was her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before she married William. Um, and he, in his will, he left her a very generous dowry. And he names her as, he refers to her as, my daughter Agnes. And that was a real lightning bolt moment for me because I thought, you know, on top of everything else, have we been calling her by the wrong name for almost half a century? Um, so I decided to give this name back to her. And so in my novel, she's called Agnes. So in a way, it's a portrait of a woman. It's a portrait of a marriage. But the point of entry is Hamnet their son. Why and how did you come to choose that point of entry? When I was at school, um, when I was 16 or 17, I studied the play Hamlet and I really fell in love with the play in a very profound way. I think it appeals to a certain type of adolescent, perhaps somebody a little bit melancholic 
and introspective. And I had a wonderful English teacher who mentioned one day in passing that Shakespeare had had a son who was called Hamnet and died aged 11, about four or five years before the play was written. And I remember being really struck by the similarity, the near echo of their names and wondering, what did it mean? What does it mean for a playwright to give pretty much what is pretty much his son's name to this astonishing tragedy, to, the, to its main character and also to a ghost? And when I went to university, I studied literature there and I read an awful lot more about Shakespeare. And it was only then that I began to appreciate that Shakespeare himself, um, despite the enormous body of work we have in his plays and his poetry, is a very mysterious figure. There's so much we don't know about him. You know, he has left a very scant paper trail, a very scant account of himself. There's so many gaps in his story that even despite the the best scholars and the best biographers in the world, nobody's been ever to um, uncover you know, certain gaps in his story. That, you know, there, there are lots and lots of uh, dots that haven't been joined in a way. But it's just always seemed to me, I think, ever since then, that, um, that this single act in calling your, perhaps your best play, I think it's his best play, after your dead son is, is a very, very significant act. And it just seems to me that in that moment, when you think about it, Shakespeare himself um, becomes briefly visible as a human being, as a grieving father. Um, and I've just always been fascinated by the link between this dead boy and then the play that appeared uh, four or five years later. Mm -hmm. Yet you, meant, you never mentioned him by name. No. <laughs> Consciously, I well, imagine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's really tricky. You know, that his name, William Shakespeare, carries such enormous weight and such enormous heft. And it's almost impossible. I found it impossible to write that name into a sentence in a novel. So I found that I couldn't write something like William Shakespeare came down the stairs and had breakfast. You know, it just sounded ridiculous. I just, I couldn't write it without feeling like a total idiot. So I thought, well, if I, as the writer, I can't stay immersed in the narrative by using this name. I can't expect readers to either. So mm -hmm. I just decided to do away with it altogether. And I think in a way it was, um, that's why I, I wanted readers to discard everything they think they know about him and his wife and open themselves up to this new, this new interpretation. Um, but it was, I did find it was, <laughs> it's certainly in a technical term, technical sort of grammatical terms, I did run into a few difficulties because it's actually, it's quite difficult in terms of grammar to have scenes where you're not, you don't name someone, someone who's nameless. In particular, there's one, the trickiest scene of all was actually one where he um, gets into an argument and a, and a fight almost with Agnes's brother, Bartholomew. It's the only scene in the book where there are two male characters squaring up against each other, which can be very tricky when one of your characters is only he and him. So I did get myself into a real kind of... Um, lexical uh, sentence uh, structure knots, but somehow I managed, I hope anyway, that it's, it's clear enough for readers to understand. You pulled it off uh, brilliantly. How did you go about to get the feel for the 16th century life? And I mean this in a very literal way, because the story is told in a very tangible, smelly, um, real um, way. Um, it's all made... Um, very realistic and and practical. 
um, how do you go about to to glean what the reality of life at that time was also Agnes is a very grounded kind of person while at the same time having this a very um, deep uh, sensibility for feelings and dreams of other people. How did you go about it? Well, in terms of research, I mean, a lot of the, res the sort of research for the book was done in a library because um, there were no shortage of books about Shakespeare. You could spend the rest of your life reading about him, if, should you so wish. Um, so uh, there was a lot of sort of factual research, library-based and paper-based on the internet, but in terms of um, bringing to life that um, that part of that part of history, that was a little bit trickier because the sort of documentation of the life of that time tends to focus on um, well, it, it doesn't tend to focus on the lives of ordinary people living in small towns like Stratford upon Avon. So for that, I decided that I needed to do um, research that wasn't so library based; it was actually practically based. I actually planted, grew my own. Elizabethan medicinal garden and I used a book from the time um, which told me all the different plants that that any household would have grown in its garden so, so in order to be able to treat minor ailments within the house every every woman of the house would, would have had a garden like this and I'm not really much of a gardener so <laughs> it was quite a steep learning curve for me but you see I just found that I, I couldn't really particularly for the lives of the women actually whose lives are pretty much undocumented, I found that I, you know, it's one thing to read about in a novel or in a book, actually, that says, you know, they used comfrey to cure aching joints. Um, but in order to actually write the book, you need to know what it was like to plant those comfrey seeds and then to grow, uh, sort of water the flower and then take the leaves and then make them into a medicine. So I, I, I did make the garden. I also went on a course on how to turn plants into medicine. And I also learned to fly a kestrel. Yeah, I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah, that was the most fun thing I've ever done in the name of research. I went down to the Scottish borders to, um, I met a falconer and she taught me how to fly a kestrel. But you see, I, I, I'd actually already written the scene in the book where Agnes flies the kestrel. Um, but when I actually went to fly a kestrel, uh, I realized that kestrels are about the size of a small kitten. They're very, very light and totally silent. So when they appear on your glove, you almost don't know they're there and they just land without any sensation whatsoever. So it just shows that that's where you need to go and do it. So I had to go back and completely rewrite the scene. But I, I was very interested, you know, there were, I wanted to, um, most of all, to uh, present their marriage in a way that had never been presented before. Um, I wanted to present it as a real uh, union of hearts and minds and an exchange of and kind of brands of intelligence. And I, I've always been very, I mean, one of the things, of course, that's so astonishing about Shakespeare's writing is the range of his knowledge that he displays in his metaphors and um, in his imagery. And of course, the, the, there's an awful lot about herbology in Hamlet, um, particularly in the scene where the mad Ophelia hands plants to people. And all those plants are a very, inf you know, Shakespeare in that scene displays a very informed knowledge of herbology because all the plants that she gives to people are a cure for a flaw that she perceives in their character. Um, and so I decided to give that area of expertise to her. Um, and I also wanted her to have a falcon or a hawk because there's, there's quite a lot of hawking and falconry metaphors in Shakespeare. There, there are a couple in Hamlet and also a few in Taming of the Shrew. So again, I wanted to give this area of expertise to her to suggest the idea that 
maybe he gleaned from her. Yeah. So the the text you wrote is really in conversation with the the, the play um, William Shakespeare wrote, and also the use of herbs and flowers um, is is beautifully written into the scene when when young Hamnet has died and his mother is preparing his body for the burial. Um, mm. She she wraps in, let's say, some of the herbs that, that might protect him or somehow help him uh, cross into the other world. That must have been an incredibly um, difficult scene to write. I imagine as a writer you want to be in it and make it f heartfelt, but at the same time you need a cold eye to know what works and what doesn't. How do you balance those two? Um, it was hard. I mean, the, you know, the two scenes in the book that I think were hardest to write, maybe some of the hardest things I've ever written in a way were the scenes, the, the two scenes at the center of the book where Hamlet dies and then his mother lays his body out for burial, which of course is what would have happened in those days. That would be of the mother or the woman at the house. Um, and they were very hard, you know, because I had become, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose for me writing the book, the engine behind the book, in a way, was that I wanted to take this, the life of this boy who'd been consigned to a literary footnote, who'd been largely ignored by history um, and very underwritten. And, you know, in, in any biography of Shakespeare, Hamlet's lucky if he gets maybe one or two mentions. Um, so I feel that he, his significance has been hugely underplayed for the last almost half century. So the reason why I wanted to write the book was to say, you know, this boy was important, he was loved, he was grieved, his life was hugely significant. You know, without him, we wouldn't have the play Hamlet and we certainly wouldn't have Twelfth Night. Um, you know, because so many biographers have kind of, have, um, in barely mentioning Hamlet's death, it seems to ignore him. And then they often wrap it in statistics about infant or child mortality in Elizabethan times, almost as if the unspoken suggestion is, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal that he died because lots of children died in those days, you know, which is such a heartbreaking assumption to make. It's, it's terrible. And also you only have to read, you know, the opening scenes of the play Hamlet to realize that this is a play underpinned by this enormous chasm of grief. Um, so I wanted to write this book to, to give a voice and a presence and significance to this boy, this lost child. Um, so in a way, I wanted his death um, in the novel to feel, to feel significant and to feel momentous. So in a way, I, I wanted it to be really affecting. I wanted readers to, to grieve alongside his mother and his father and his, and his sisters. The very last thing I wanted to do was to kill this character. But unfortunately, you know, like the end of uh, Romeo and Juliet, it's unavoidable. It, it has to end. We all know that Hamlet died. We, we, you know, you can see the the burial entry in the parish um, records for Stratford-upon-Avon for August uh, eight, uh, six, 1596. So I knew that I, he had to die. So it, it was very hard to write, particularly, you know, having my own children as well, because you, you have to, I knew that I'd always have to put myself inside the mind and the skin of a woman who is sit at her child's bedside and to watch him die. It's a book I wanted to write for a really long time, but I found that I was unable to write it while my own son was under the age of 12. I just had an odd superstition that I couldn't write it and safely pass the age where Hamlet died. 
So I actually wrote those scenes um, in quite short bursts, in 15 or 20 minute bursts. And then I would take a break and then I'd go back and do another 15 or 20 minutes. And I found out I couldn't write them in the house where I live with my children. I actually wrote them in a shed in the garden. And it wasn't a nice uh, warm shed. It was a really old, uh, falling down, <laughs> dilapidated potting shed. Mm -hmm. Would you say that um, the fact that his death is r almost written out of the official biographies of William Shakespeare or hasn't been really properly looked at um, by his biographers might have something to do with the fact that family life with regard to an artist's life has been overlooked for a very long time? Family life and marriage, the relationship between siblings is is one of the recurrent themes in your novels. And also in Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> um, I think, I think the, I mean, I think the funny, the strange thing about Shakespeare's story is, you know, obviously there is a very good and valid reason why biographers and other writers and filmmakers have focused on Shakespeare's life in London, because Obviously, that's where that's where it all happened. That's where he was an actor. That's where he wrote his play. That's where he put on his plays. So, in a way, I, I can understand why, of course, biographers focus on Shakespeare's career because that's that's the big deal, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it, it was always seemed to me that the biggest drama in Shakespeare's life, the most significant drama in his life, happened off stage, in a sense, back in Stratford. I mean, I think, you know, quite a lot of biographers have made, um, they've tried to make the idea that he went to London to work um, as a kind of sign that their marriage was in trouble, that he didn't like his wife, that he regretted his marriage. But it's not true. I mean, if you actually, if you look at parish records, it wasn't uncommon for men in a household to go to work to London as it, as it isn't today. You know, that's where the jobs were. And you know, obviously it's, it's impossible to know whether or not how much Shakespeare came back to Stratford to visit his family because all no one's ever been able to find his papers or his letters or his library, for example. There's a theory that it was all destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, which is plausible, but no one knows. But, you know, I think the, the most significant things for me about thinking about Shakespeare and his connection to his domestic life are two things. At the end of his career, when he retired from the stage, he could have lived anywhere. He was incredibly wealthy at this point. He was the equivalent of a multimillionaire. He was a very good businessman, in addition to being uh, an actor and a, a pretty good playwright. Um, and also every single penny he earned on the stage in London, which was a huge amount of money, he sent back to Stratford. So right at the end of his career, even though he was incredibly wealthy, he chose to live in very modest lodgings in London and all his money he sent back to Stratford. So he bought his wife and daughters an enormous mansion of a house a year after Hamlet died. And he also sent his money back and he bought fields and he bought cottages and land, which he leased out to people in Warwickshire. Um, and both of those factual evidence, there is factual documentary evidence of that. And both those things suggest that his heart and his mind was back in Stratford with his family, that he cared about them deeply and that he always intended to return. It's interesting, um, th this whole context of the artist creating or, or um, uh, going about his business, the man, and you focusing in your work, I want to s take a step back and look at, at other novels as well, uh, focusing on, on women 
um, coming into their own, trying to live their own lives, but almost always um, paying a price for it in terms of loneliness, um, in terms of being considered somewhat of an outsider or having to place themselves outside um, what is considered conventional. Um, tell us a bit about that. Um, is that something you're aware of or that just happens to happen on the page like that? <laughs> it's, not, well, it's not something I was particularly aware of. I think what interests me is people, as I think probably interests a lot of writers, it's the idea of the multiple selves that we have. I read something recently um, about the, how Japanese is the only language in existence which has more than one word for self. It has one word for um, the inner private self that's your private self that you don't show anybody else. And then it has another word for the self that you show in public, in, in, in society or in a group of people, which I think is a really interesting linguistic distinction. And it's amazing that no other languages have that <laughs> mm -hmm. because I think in a sense, we all have many, many, many different selves, you know, where there's the self, but we also have invisible uh, non-existent selves, you know, the lives that we didn't live or the lives that we narrowly escaped. And I think as a writer, it's, it's that that interests me. It's... The idea that our lives could go in any direction, that life is very arbitrary and all down to chance. Yeah. It's and there are many that is... selves that, Sorry, it's something that Go is ahead. very literally in, in your books, uh, characters as in Hamlet, for example, um, you mention William Shakespeare um, uh, being split into Agnes observing this in him, in him, she herself feeling split into characters in other novels as well, or uh, moments that you describe that you experienced in your own life in I am, I am, I am, where you had a brush with death and death took the other way for that moment, mm. but still. Um, so there's always these parallel lives, you could say, or these parallel selves mm -hmm. and this whole universe that isn't visible, but is really there. It has a touch of the supernatural some or spiritual um, in a way. Uh, would you describe it as like that yourself or not? I'm not sure. I think it has an element of the supernatural, but actually I think it's more um, grounded than that in a way because it, it's quite real. It's not as if it's a kind of existence in a spiritual love. It's, it's just a life that might have been yours or could have been yours in a way. And you as a writer are trying to pin it down, hold on to it like Shakespeare did, writing Hamnet to um, sort of harness the, the memory of his son and keep it alive, let it grow on? Yeah, in a sense, you know, I think I'm interested in, in writing Hamnet, you know, and I always knew that the novel would end with the first production of the play Hamlet. I read, a st I read something, a reference to something which may be apocryphal, I, I hope it's true, um, in, was that Shakespeare himself took the part of the ghost in the first production of Hamlet. And as a novelist, that was really irresistible. <laughs> I thought, I have to use that. So I always knew the play, that, sorry, I always knew my novel would end with the play, because one of the questions that always arose in my mind when I was thinking about it was, you know, I wondered how his mother felt about the play being named after her dead son. 
because in, in the, they are actually the same name. In Elizabethan times, spelling was a lot less stable, and Hamnet and Hamlet are the same name. They are interchangeable for the same person in certain records, in certain parish records, um, just as Agnes and Anne is, is, is also the same name. So I just wondered, and I was thinking, well, I, I don't know if I would have been thrilled, actually, if my husband had taken the name of our dead son and used it for a play. So I was just wondering how, how she might have felt about that. But also, I think with the novel, I wanted to examine the idea of where art comes from, why we need to produce it, you know, how, how certain terrible, terrible events, that, you know, the worst possible event for a parent, certainly, how that can how that will always come out it needs it needs time to go underground in a sense in somebody but then it will always come out in mm -hmm. in, in some kind of work if that person is an artist you know why we need to where the urge to produce art comes from and why we also conversely as an audience need it why we need to see it exactly the 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 novel um can be said to be about um, a lot of things um, family life, marriage, we mentioned that already, um, mortality, but certainly it is about the power of art. And it's interesting that you should say, um, I, I don't know if I'd be happy um, if, if a spouse wrote about a loss in the family, say, but maybe you as an artist would find yourself doing just that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. I hope, I hope, pray to God that it doesn't ever come to that. <laughs> I have to write about that. But um, no, but I think I, I was just interested. It was just a question in my mind of how she had felt about it and whether he asked her or whether he checked it, whether he let her read it or whether he read it aloud to her if she couldn't read. I don't know. I was just wondering about the, her relationship with the, the use of the name because, you know, it, it has been discussed, you know, whether or not how significant it was to him. You know, I mean, I've read biographers who've said, you know, it's impossible to know whether or not it's significant that he used his son's name for Hamlet, which makes me kind of want to shout, well, how could it not be? You know, of course it's significant. You know, mm -hmm. no writer in the world would likely use their dead child's name for the title of a play and for the two characters in the play. You know, it's an enormously significant act. We have to examine it and we have to think about it in those terms. But I've never seen anybody ask the question, how did she feel about it? And here you addressed it. Um, of course, he died because of pestilence, um, a pandemic. Well, actually, we, d we don't know why he died. That, there's okay. no, I mean, the real Hamlet Shakespeare, that we, we just know his burial. He was buried in high summer in a plague year. But I, the, the, the use of the plague in the book is mine. It, it isn't definitely, it isn't for sure that that's what he died of. Unfortunately, okay. there was no shortage of things that could have killed the child in those days. Mm -hmm. But you go for that uh, strand of possible reality, say, and you uh, write a beautiful chapter on the way the disease travels across the world. And it's beautifully written, of course, but it also places this domestic drama in a wider context, in a global context even. Um, mm. Tell us about uh, how, how you decided to put that chapter in, because it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a sidestep, you might say, or a chapter that stands mm. very well on its own as well. I don't really plan novels very much. I'm not a great planner, either in, in life or in fiction, actually. 
Um, and so, but I had a vague idea, you know, the way this novel would be structured, but I hadn't really planned that I would write that chapter at all. Um, it sort of seemed to appear uh, from nowhere in a way, but I, I really like it in those moments in the process of writing where the novel suggests things to you itself. It's, it sort of takes on a life of its own. I always think it's a good sign. It means that the novel's acquired its own pulse in a way, its own heartbeat. And so it just felt to me, I think I'd written, it's about, it's almost halfway through the book and it just occurred to me at the time that the book felt quite claustrophobic in a way. It takes place pretty much in one house or it takes place in, in a couple of houses in a small town. And I felt at that point I wanted to, um, throw the book open i wanted to throw it open wide and um bring a sense of the kind of the scale of this horrific disease that dominated life in elizabethan times and for earlier populations as well all over europe you know it would have been at the forefront of most elizabethans minds their lives would have been defined by it everybody would have known the signs and the symbols and exactly what happened i mean shakespeare's career shakespeare himself his career would have been continually interrupted by it because as soon as there were a few cases in London, the very first thing that authorities did was to close down the playhouses. And if you think that the original Globe Theatre had a capacity for 3,000 people and they were all gathering in the midday, in the midday heat in the summer, you know, you can see why that would be a very dangerous place to be in, in, in an outbreak of plague. Um, so it just seemed to me that I wanted to to show the, the scale of this horrible disease, because the scale was enormous. At one outbreak, it killed a quarter of the world's population in Europe alone. Um, so it was an extremely virulent disease. And I just felt that I needed to open up the book. And so I decided that I would write a chapter uh, tracing the journey of the, uh, the plague, which comes on a flea from a monkey in Alexandria. And it comes via an Elizabethan trade route all the way back to um, England. And I had, I researched, you know, it's, it is odd looking, <laughs> looking at it now, because of course I wrote this a year before anyone had even heard the word COVID-19. Um, and I, so it was just at that time, I mean, I remember thinking, I wonder what it would be like to be living in a pandemic. What would it be like, you know, sitting in your house knowing that there was this fatal disease sweeping towards you? And, it, you know, it's, at the time it was a sort of intellectual exercise and one of research, and I had lots of maps of Elizabethan trade routes and, I had plotted all the ports where they would have swapped certain goods for others, silks and furs and spices. And, you know, and I, I researched the life cycle of the flea to understand how long they lived and how, how long they would, how they would pass it on and how long it took for the eggs to hatch, all these really disgusting things. And actually, you know, when I think about it now, a whole year ago when, you know, the, the, the COVID had appeared in Northern Italy and I think everybody in Europe knew that it was only a matter of time for reach, you know, breaching certain borders. I remember looking at these infographics that show these arrows of infection, and it looked just the same as the ones I'd been looking at the previous year for, for the Black Death. It was a strange echo. Um, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us, Maggie O'Farrell, uh, and for this conversation. Mm -hmm.